Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please join us at acons.substack.com. There you will find our commentary and links to our podcast and also uh, places where you can find us online. You can support our pod, uh, podcast and all of our efforts. Also on Facebook this month, we are under the performance bonus program. So if you're joining us through Facebook, please like, share, comment, react, do something, but interact with our content on Facebook for the month of August, and we will benefit from that. Without further ado, I'm going to bring in our guest for today. Lieutenant Colonel Allen B. West is a combat veteran of the United States Army, where he served in uniform for 22 years. Uh, he is He was a member of the 112th Congress, representing Florida. Further, he served as the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. He is currently the executive director of the ACRU, and he is the author of three books and has an amazing podcast of his own called Steadfast and Loyal, and you can find it at alanwest.substack.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Marie. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and happy August. Well, thank you. Happy August. A few days ago, Moscow, which has been inundated by drone attacks lately, was hit with a second successful drone attack in as many days. Ukraine has not taken credit for the attacks, but Zelensky recently said that attacks in Moscow are fair game. If Ukraine is targeting Russia, um, Russian civilians, however, would this force Russia into a peace deal uh, or would it escalate further, in your opinion? Well, I think that Russia has already violated the sovereignty of Ukraine on several occasions during the Obama administration. And now, of course, during the third Obama administration, which is the Biden administration. Uh, and so when they are indiscriminately targeting civilians, uh, you know, sadly, they have brought this back on themselves. And I think that what Ukraine may be trying to do is to go after certain infrastructure and certain uh, industries that are supporting the Russian efforts to go into Ukraine. But I think from another standpoint, it will also bring to light uh, to the people in Russia that this is something that is going on. And so they cannot uh, believe that there there is no operation in Ukraine and the propaganda that uh, Vladimir Putin is putting out, uh, they can be awakened from that. So lots of times when all of a sudden a military venture starts to affect the civilian populace, then they start to uh, get interested in it and they start to decide that they don't want to be a, a party of this. Uh, because right now we know that there are many body bags coming back from Ukraine of young Russian men. We know that Vladimir Putin is trying to clean out the uh, the jails in order to fill his ranks of troops. 
But now we need to see some of this obviously further uh, come to uh, the doorsteps of the, the people of Russia. And now we see uh, Russia even going and extending this uh, towards Poland. Poland has uh, set their troops toward their eastern border and even Romania. So once again, we see the uh, what happened in World War II when it was just Sudetenland, then it became uh, Poland, then it became a bigger world war. So I think that we have to do everything we possibly can to stop this and to contain it where it is and put the pressure on Vladimir Putin and the Russian people to realize that Ukraine is not the aggressor they were and they need to cease these hostilities. Now, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, who still serves as deputy chairman of the Security Council of Russia, mm -hmm. said that we uh, that should Ukraine and NATO succeed in taking what he calls Russian land, then, quote, we would have to use nuclear weapons, end quote. How credible is this threat from the second most powerful man in Russia? Uh, I think that's a false threat because everyone knows if they unleash that uh, Pandora's box, it is really going to bode not so well for them uh, because of the collateral effects and damage that will come from, from that and the decisions that will be forced. And I don't think that China will allow uh, Russia to make that decision as well because uh, China needs Russia to continue to ship them oil and, and uh, energy resources, and they can't do that if uh, they've been obliterated. So I, I think that you see this as one of those desperation things. They throw that out there to try to scare everyone into paralysis. But really what is happening is that Russia understands that they cannot win this. And, and they are starting to realize that, you know, there are more uh, nations that are standing up against this aggression. And if they continue down this path, they will find themselves not just the economic sanctions, but possibly diplomatic isolation. That's one of the things we should be doing. And here in the United States of America, we should go back to producing, consuming, and exporting our energy resources to undermine yes. the Russian economy. I mean, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen a president do is to undermine your own energy independence. But Again, think about the similarities, because remember when Adolf Hitler talked about, you know, I just want to, you know, get the Sudetenland because we've got to protect these ethnic Germans and, oh, I need to have this because we need. And then the next thing you know, he says, OK, you guys never stop me. And so I'm going to continue on. And he uh, did the Blitzkrieg operation through Poland. And then, of course, he went in into France. So. What is amazing to me is that Russia, again, first during the Obama administration, they violate the territorial integrity of Ukraine by going in into uh, the east and down and uh, taking over and annexing Crimea. Uh, and so now we have seen that continue on with them going across an international border into a sovereign nation, Ukraine, and taking over the eastern portion of that country. So they have no claims whatsoever here. Did President Biden make the correct call in sending cluster bombs to Ukraine, an action not only reportedly opposed by NATO, but also uh, from Congress members ranging from Ilhan Omar to Majorie Taylor Greene? No, I don't think sending cluster bombs was the right thing. And uh, I got to kind of tell you, having been a, a ground pounder in the military, we were always concerned about going over ground where there were these cluster bomb munitions uh, because there is a dud rate that is, that is there. And you have to be very concerned about that. And that's why we have not been using them. But what really is the, uh, the story behind this and what has been uncovered is that we have a shortage of ammunition. 
And it's not just a shortage of ammunition being sent to, to Ukraine. This is a shortage of ammunition overall for the United States military, which means that we cannot properly train uh, and prepare our own military to be able to go out and uh, defend our way of life, to uh, defend our allies, and uh, to execute any orders that come down from the commander in chief. So I think that's the real story, is that for whatever reason, the military is more focused on all these woke programs and policies and things of that nature. Uh, and the uh, industrial ind uh, industry is not doing what is necessary to keep our men and women uh, properly supplied with arms and ammunition. Should we be concerned that the United States or NATO's involvement in the Ukraine-Russia conflict may be inevitable, or do you see the possibility of a peaceful resolution? Well, it's two different ways to look at that. If you're a Ukrainian, what's the peaceful resolution? You want your territorial integrity back. You don't want to hear that, well, we're going to let Russia have you know, Crimea. We're going to let them have a portion of your country in eastern uh, uh, Ukraine. That, that's that's a, a non-starter for them. Uh, but again, I will tell you that when you look at what happened with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, we're coming up on one year anniversary of that. Uh, um, I mean, uh, uh, more than a one year anniversary, I'm sorry. But when you look at what happened with that withdrawal from Afghanistan, when you look at what happened when our own president goes after our energy independence and make us energy dependent, those are the two critical things that gave a green light. To Vladimir Putin for what he's doing. So let's reestablish our energy independence and let's start to diplomatically and e economically isolate Russia and, you know, their backing of China. I think that this is a great opportunity that the United States goes to the United Nations and says, why do you have this country on your Security Council? Kick them out. Uh, why do you have a country like China and all their human? Kick them out. Or else, you know, the United States walks away from the United Nations. I mean, that's the type of bold actions that we need to see happening. Uh, Senate Democrats voted overwhelmingly to oppose the creation of a new office to audit Ukraine aid as part of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, while Republicans voted nearly unanimously for it. Why is having an account where uh, of where U.S. taxpayer money uh is going a partisan issue? Well, perhaps they don't want anything to be uncovered, which can be damaging to this current Biden administration uh, and can be linked back to the whole episode with Hunter Biden and Burisma and what have you. Uh, there are a lot of concerns about the money that has been sent over there. The fact that Joe Biden was talking about paying off pensions. I mean, American taxpayer money should not be going off to pay off pensions or anything other than trying to support their efforts to defend their country, which means that we should be sending them arms and not just cash. And even the arms that we are sending, I've been reading some reports that some of those things have fallen into the hands of, uh, you know, criminal gangs and things of this nature. Uh, so we don't have even a good track of the arms that are, are flowing over there to, to Ukraine. So uh, it shows me that the Senate Democrats, the Democrats, period, are very concerned about the uh, the deep hold in which all of these billions of dollars are going over to, to Ukraine. And maybe we're not seeing a good return on investment. Maybe it's falling into the wrong hands. And we know that corruption is a big issue in Ukraine. And I don't think that the Democrats want anyone to know that maybe perhaps they're aiding and abetting corruption in Ukraine. 
Well, and also the issue of how much aid has gone over there when mm -hmm. uh, in your recent episode, uh, we talked about veteran suicides and, you know, so many things that are happening here in this country where those funds could go. Not that I don't have sympathy for what's going on in Ukraine, but, you know, we do have people here who are applying for food stamps that are in our military. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I think it's absolutely abhorrent because if you're in the military right now and you're being told that you have to go and apply for food stamps and you look at people coming across the border illegally and they're getting cell phones, they're getting all types of benefits, free health care, free housing. You're a homeless veteran. You see that. What does that tell you? Uh, you're sitting in our military. You don't have enough ammunition to go out and train, but you know that ammunition is being sent uh, overseas as well as billions of dollars being sent overseas. And you're right. We, we have no problems. Uh, and I don't support the indiscriminate targeting of innocent women and children and the invading of a sovereign nation. But we also have to take care of our own first. And that's not what we see happening with uh, this current Biden administration. And again, coming back to the whole uh, question about having an audit, could it be that uh, Ukraine has our president in a very compromised position? And so he wants to continue the shipping money over there to them. Uh, and for what reason? Uh, is it because he's trying to cover his butt and uh, his son's butt or or what? I mean, so I think that's one of the important things that we have to get to the bottom of. And I think that that is something that affects the uh, morale and the recruitment in our United States military. Speaking of the NDAA, you have stated that the NDAA is being used to fund, quote, leftist ideological agenda policies, end quote. Mm -hmm. Give us an example of the sort of policy that you're referring to and why you think these policies are, quote, contribute a contributing factor to the degradation of our military readiness, end quote. Well, I'll start off with the reason why Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama is blocking uh, these promotions uh, of, you know, senior generals and, and their repositionings uh, because the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and Tommy Tuberville warned him about doing this, Senator Tuberville did, uh, sent a memo out saying that uh, to get around the Dobbs decision, uh, that members of the military would be allowed to take paid leave, okay, and, and have all of their expenses paid if they want to go to another state where they could have uh, a procedure performed that would uh, murder the unborn child in their womb. Now, what is the United States military doing spending taxpayer money, which is against the Hyde Amendment, so it's unconstitutional what they're doing, uh, to destroy military families? Uh, I thought we're supposed to care for military families. I thought that we wanted to have soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, guardians that were giving birth to future soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians. But now we have turned into an ideological platform. Uh, when you look at what is going on with this gender dysphoria and how we are supposedly using taxpayer dollars to fund hormonal therapies, uh, you know, counselings, uh, transition surgeries. That's not what the American taxpayer signed up for. And furthermore, why do we have people that are suffering from a mental condition uh, and showing suicidal tendencies in our United States military? You can't join the military if you got flat feet. You don't get to stay in the military if you're overweight. No, by the way, guess what? If you're one of these uh, gender dysphoric people, you can apply for an exemption so you do not have to have any type of physical fitness testing. Uh, and that you know affects our readiness because now all of a sudden you have people that aren't deployable. deployable. Uh, 
uh, you look at the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and the millions of dollars we're spending, not just on the salaries for these people, but for these programs. How can you have a cohesive fighting force if you're telling one group they're oppressors and the other group they're being oppressed? And then the, the other foolishness about, you know, getting electric vehicles in the military telling that, you know, our number one uh, threat is climate change. I don't know how the military is supposed to fight the weather. Uh, you know, I was in a lot of bad weather. I couldn't make it stop, but I'm supposed to be able to, you know, con conduct sustained operations regardless of what the weather is. You can't do that if you're running around in a tank with a, you know, a lithium battery, which, of course, you have to get from China since they've cornered the lithium battery market. So uh, we, we can't stop in the middle of a battle and uh, recharge our, our vehicles. Now, I don't know how many charging stations there are out there in the middle of nowhere, uh, some of the places I've been. That leads me, you brought up a number of issues about uh, transgender people serving in the military, all of this kind of lefty woke indoctrination that is reaching uh, into these policies that are facing our military. Mm -hmm. Who do you hold responsible for the increasingly left lean of the military? You mentioned Lloyd Austin. Uh, is it General Mark Milley? Who ultimately would you say it's the commander in chief. Is that's who the president is, and so he is allowing these policies. But then uh, he has his henchmen out there, being the secretary of defense, General Lloyd Austin, retired, and General Mark Milley, and this person that he's trying to nominate uh, for the next uh, chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is basically Al Sharpton in a military uniform with four stars. Uh, it comes from Joe Biden. It comes from his administration. It comes from his advisors. It comes from the White House. And then it filters on down. But I also hold responsible and accountable these senior level leaders in the military that are not pushing back against this, that are just going along to get along. And so they have become politicized generals and not military leaders. And I think that's why the force is suffering. That's why we see these uh, the degradation in the recruiting numbers. When you have a secretary of the army, that Christine Warmoth, that comes out and says that she does not want to recruit from families that have given generational service to the United States military, like mine. Uh, my dad from World War II to my nephew, who's a lieutenant colonel serving today. Uh, she wants to look at uh, other places where she can go and recruit. Hey, if I'm the, uh, you know, the, the uh, chief of staff of the Army, I'm sitting down talking to her and said, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No, we need to go out there and find those members of these families that have been serving this country for years upon years, generation upon generations. And if you want to continue down this path, then here's my resignation papers. When you start to get those type of leaders in our military uh, that are willing to, to, to say, no, we're not going to be a part of this, maybe you can turn the tide. But right now, everyone's just in a go-along, get-along mode. Mm. One of your recent guests on Steadfast and Loyal, as we alluded to, was Elizabeth Fields of the Warrior Connection. And the two of you spoke about a subject we rarely hear about, and that's military sexual trauma, or mm -hmm. MST. How great a problem is MST, especially for our female warriors, whose suicide rate is double that of women in the national population? Well, it's, it's very, very critical. And there are also males that are the victims of this military sexual trauma. I mean, that's the 
un, you know, unheard of thing, you know, since we went down the, the line of, you know, openly having uh, these same-sex relationships, a lot of this is occurring as well. But it is very tragic that we are having these uh, these sexual traumas. And if you recall, there was the uh, black female Air Force uh, officer who ran for uh, Congress, I believe, out of Indiana, Gary, Indiana area. And she was a victim of military sexual trauma. And they actually uh, put her case out there uh, in the public sphere. Uh, to try to undermine her campaign. And, and you can just imagine the trauma that that caused because she has to relive it again. So the Warrior Connection, uh, Elizabeth Fields, she's the executive director, they really do focus on this military sexual trauma and they have a waiting list of some 600 uh, men and women to, to get into their program. Uh, and so we've got to do better. Uh, one thing that I say that you have to you know, have is a zero tolerance for this in the, in the in the military anyone that is guilty of this i mean they get the harshest punishment but i think also when you get our military back focused on what it should be and and i don't like a lot of these uh, co-ed basic trainings and things of this nature. Uh, I think we don't want to create the environments uh, and the atmospheres and the situations where this type of uh, incidents these type of incidents can thrive. That's absolutely right. Now, before the testimony of uh, former Biden business associate Devin Archer, mm -hmm. uh, who testified that he saw Hunter Biden put then Pre Vice President Joe Biden on the phone with various business partners over 20 times, mm -hmm. uh, House Speaker McCarthy floated the idea of an impeachment inquiry, which could lead to the impeachment of our president. What is your view on that? I think you have to do that. I mean, without a doubt, all the evidence shows that the case is building and the impeachment inquiry gives the House of Representatives the ability to subpoena more information like these suspicious activity reports, these financial reports that the uh, Treasury Department is sitting on because guess what? The Treasury Secretary works for who? Works for Joe Biden. They don't want to be you know, uh, uh, very forthcoming with information, just the same as we saw the stonewalling from uh, Christopher Ray on this Form 1023, I think that's what it's called, that uh, talked about some instances of potential bribery. So I think that we have to get to the bottom of this. And even so, it's very damning when you think about how Americans are struggling to put food on their tables. Americans are struggling to put uh, gas in their in their vehicles. You know, you're coming off a summer vacation. How many people were not able to take a summer vacation because they could not afford the gasoline to, to go somewhere? But yet you have this administration that is, is selling its influence, uh, the, the Biden family selling its influence to enrich themselves while the American people are suffering and then going to come out and tell us how great Bidenomics is. Uh, this is insane. And so I think we have to get to the bottom of it. And I believe that the more they try to turn the attention on President Trump, the more people are going to realize that they're the ones that are really the most corrupt. And I want to touch on that. I wanted to pivot to that because what you're saying is absolutely right. Not only that, but all of these, I'm just going to call it a witch hunt, but you can call it whatever you like, but just these constant 
impeachment inquiries and, you know, all of this kind of stuff against President Trump. How much does that cost the American taxpayer? Plus, we're paying this aid to Ukraine. We're doing all of this other stuff. We're paying off these forgiven student loan debts. We're paying for all of these illegal immigrants that are coming over. As you said, you know, they're getting all of these benefits. Um, We're not an unlimited supply of money. I don't I can tell the federal government that, I don't know, but they're not turning off the spigot anytime soon. And so what you're seeing is yet another thing that came out last night where President Trump, they're doing another uh, indictment, uh, which is going to cost, the inquiry is going to cost a lot of money for the taxpayers. And yet we still do not know who left the cocaine in the White House. And yet nothing has happened with the Hunter Biden left. I mean, it's just taken till now for people to say, oh, that fire seems to be getting, you know, a little steam of it, a head of steam Mm -hmm. of its own. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been saying that all along. A lot of us on the right have been saying that all along. It doesn't seem like there, well, two things. One, the money, um, but two, it doesn't seem like there's a standard that's being evenly applied. No, there is an unequal application of the law and and justice, and this uh, is quite evident to the American people. Uh, You think about how, you know, President Trump was impeached twice. Uh, He was impeached based upon a hoax that was created by a lying member of Congress, and that's Adam Schiff, who is now running for senator. Uh, out of California. So you screw up and you move up in in the Democrat Party's eyes. Uh, And then he was impeached over a phone call uh, to Ukraine about uh, finding out about corruption and why this uh, prosecutor was was fired. Well, now we know why the prosecutor was fired. Basically, all all roads lead back to the Bidens and uh, and Burisma. So, So what the left has to realize is that they're exposing themselves in a very dangerous way. And I liken it to kids uh, having some matches and sticks of dynamite and playing with them. Uh, it is really going to blow up in their faces. Uh, and you're, you you look at all the money that's being expended for this uh, between the impe- impeachments of uh, President Trump and all of these inquiries that you know really aren't going to go anywhere. This latest one that uh, Jack Smith has just brought forward uh, about obstructing and conspiracy and all of these things, they're, they're reaching and grabbing at whatever straw they possibly can to keep President Trump tied up and keep him, you know, using his funds for, you know, legal expenses instead of uh, campaign expenses. But I, I believe that it is once again going to work against them. Whether or not yes. President Trump is the nominee, it's going to work against them because people see this corruption. They see this duality of justice. They see this two-tiered system. Uh, and they see that the left does not care about the rule of law. They only care about ruling. Uh, to touch on that a little bit further, President Trump has been indicted for a third time, this time for, quote unquote, making knowingly false claims about voter fraud. What is your reaction to <laughs> a politician facing prison time yeah. for knowingly making false claims? I mean, isn't that kind of in the job description for at least most politician. Well, let's go Present back. Company accepted. Then then why wasn't Al Gore put yeah. in the prison? Uh, we can go back to 2004 when Bush defeated Kerry. Uh, we can go back to uh, 2016 and look at how the Democrats responded uh, with President Trump winning and some of the things that Maxine Waters said. So this continues on. If you want to talk about uh, destroying emails and all of this type of stuff. Hillary Clinton destroyed 33,000 emails. She's destroyed government 
hardware and equipment. Hillary Clinton had uh, unauthorized private email server in her own residence, private residence that was, uh, you know, had uh, classified information being transmitted over. It was not secured. But then where, where was the, the, the consequences, ramifications and penalties for that? So, again, all of the people sit back and they see these things. I mean, we're not living in the Stone Age anymore. Uh, we're not out there on the telegraph and, and we, we're not sitting around uh, not even having radios in our in our homes. People have access to information and they know that this administration right now, what they are seeking to do is not even third world. It's like fourth or fifth world. But they are bringing, you know, criminal charges against their, you know, political opposition. This is not America. This is something that I don't know what what it is, but I know what the the leftists want it to be, and I believe that people are going to reject that soundly next year. Well, it's Orwellian. I mean, it's, it is it's really. I mean, when I read 1984 and. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Brave New World in high school, I never thought. I mean, I really did think it was science fiction. I'm like, you know, that'll never happen. No, nah, here we are. It's deja vu all over again. It's bizarre. Um, yeah. Now, I want to ask you about something that, you know, you and I have uh, had a number of interviews across the years, but one of the earliest things that you and I talked about that we really connected on was the issue of school choice and how it is yeah. the civil rights issue of our yes. time. And you've said that it is going to play an even bigger role in this particular presidential election. Is there a candidate that you feel is adequately addressing that as a campaign issue? I will tell you that none of them are. Uh, and that's the, the sad thing. I don't know who their consultants are, but if you want to understand an election that, I mean, uh, understand an issue that can flip an election, it is parental rights and it's school choice. And why do I say that? That's the reason why Glenn Youngkin is uh, sitting there as the governor of Virginia. And that was the reason why uh, Ron DeSantis defeated Andrew Gillum uh, back four some odd years ago uh by less than one percent because he made school choice uh a very important issue the equality of opportunity uh comes from a quality education so we should be just destroying the left on this when you look at especially in the black community where we have kids that are going to school they're not reading at grade level not doing math at grade level i think the report just came out about this uh charter school or whatever that uh, lebron james has that the kids aren't reading at grade level. I mean, come on. And, and yet you, you continue to see everyone on the left side deferring to the teachers unions. Uh, I think that this is a great gap uh, that you can exploit. And you're starting to see parents, you know, show up at these school board meetings. People are running for school board and flipping school board seats and school board positions. Uh, this is a winning subject that the left cannot do anything on. And I think it unites us all, especially when you have Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, Kareem Jean-Pierre all coming out and talking about that our children aren't ours. They belong to all of us. Well, this is the firewall. You know, when you start to mess with people's kids or their grandkids, and I can tell say that as a parent, as a grandparent, then the fight's on. That's right. Now, on Steadfast and Loyal, you recently had Corey DeAngelis, uh, mm -hmm. who is huge in the school choice world, the educational freedom world, uh, you said we've got a 
Republican legislature, uh, a Republican governor who continues to say that school choice is a priority for him. But mm -hmm. we just finished the legislative session and school choice did not get any type of attention. End quote. Nope. Why do you believe that Texas is dragging its feet in implementing school choice? Uh, because there's a lot of money out there in the the private or special interests of superintendents and others that want to keep that money flowing into the government-backed schools. They don't want the competition in education. Uh, and they're writing the checks to those people down there in Austin. But it is absolutely horrific to me that, you know, Governor Abbott can sit out and stand, you know, continue to talk about how he wants school choice and he supports school choice, and then it hits zero. Uh, and he uses the uh, Speaker of the House, Dave Phelan, to, to kill it. Uh, and we continue to put these Democrats in positions and uh, chairmanship positions or committees that killed this idea. Uh, we, we had a special session, but the special session was not called over school choice. It was called over property taxes. It's some you know, very mediocre thing that was passed. It does not fix the property tax system here in the state of Texas. And one of the big things about the state level assessment for uh, taxation, property taxation, the money gets funneled over into the schools uh, for their uh, maintenance and operations. Uh, and so we just need to have a, a complete revolution of thought here. You know, Arizona has passed a good school choice legislation. Florida has passed it as well. And why Texas is lagging behind? There's only one person that you need to have on your uh, on your podcast to talk about that, and that's the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. Many black conservatives appear to be divided about the sentence in Florida's recently unveiled Black mm -hmm. History curriculum, stating that quote slaves develop skills that could be used for personal benefit. Where do you stand on this issue? Well, first and foremost, uh, I think that the party that supported slavery, them acting with some type of unrighteous indignation about the institution that they were part of, and they continue to promulgate uh, by way of economic enslavement and continue to have people in a slave mentality talking about reparations, I find that laughable. Now, there are kids out there that can't even read that sentence in the black community. And, and I think that's where the emphasis should be on. Uh, now, could they have used some, some better language? Probably, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I, if I had been reviewing this, I would have said, hey, look, let's take this angle. Let's talk about how we were able to see the changing of a tragedy into a triumph. And what do I mean by that? Was that we took people and we got them to understand the, the importance of an education. We got them to understand the importance of developing skills so that leads to self-reliance. And who am I basically parroting? I'm parroting a man that was a former slave by the name of Booker T. Washington, that when he uh, opened up Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute down in the South, in Alabama, he talked about education, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance. It was not just about the book learning. It was also about developing the skills, which made you productive, which made you uh, needed within your communities. And so I think that that should have been the approach. And, uh, you know, Republicans can, can mess up anything. Uh, they should have come out and said, we were the party that was founded to abolish slavery. 
the Democrats were the party that continues to, you know, promote slavery. Uh, they promoted Jim Crow. They promoted uh, poll taxes, literacy tests, and all of these things. But the folks who took these recently freed slaves and tried to get them on the, the path of, you know, self-reliance were Republicans and the Republican uh, philanthropists. Hampton Institute was not started by Democrats. Tuskegee Normal Industrial Institute was not supported by, you know, Democrats. They were supported by Republicans. And, you know, when you look at the, the model of Tuskegee and Booker T. Washington, why was he so successful? Because people believed in his principles, believed in his what he was seeking to do. And that's why he, you know, had lunch in the White House with President Roosevelt. And that's why another president, President McKinley, uh, went down and visited Tuskegee Institute. So that's part of history. And that's really how I would have uh, phrased that sentence. You know, how do you turn a tragedy into triumph is through education, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance. As always, it is great to have our friend Alan West uh, on the show. Alan, how can our followers continue to uh, follow your work and find you online? Uh, sure. On all of the social media platforms, of, uh, uh, just not TikTok. I'm not supporting the Chinese Communist Party. I always say that. And uh, you can follow us, Steadfast and Loyal, uh, on YouTube, Rumble, and just you know Google it, and, and you can it'll pop up. And then also uh, the American Constitutional Rights Union, ACRU, theacru.org, where I'm the executive director. You can follow what we're doing. Excellent. As always, Thank you for being our guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Marie. Take care. Bye now. All right. It's that time in the show when we bring in DK. DK, come on in. Hey. I'm in. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Okay. Good to speak with you again. Well, yes, it's been a while, a couple of hours at least, <laughs> half an hour, maybe, uh, 40 minutes, like, yeah. Felt like forever. It, yeah, it felt like forever. <laughs> so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about something that uh, Colonel West brought up, and that is uh, this whole thing with the uh, school that LeBron James founded, because, you know, at the time... You know, and, and and maybe it's because I'm a Warriors fan coming from California, and I'm not a LeBron fan at all. I think he's, um, I don't know. Let's not talk about it. But one thing I will give him is that he is a philanthropist. He really is. He does put his money where his mouth is. So I was very surprised a few days ago to see uh, where it said that uh, his school is uh, I think it the the maybe you can show the headline. It says that um, his school for the last three years um, has not been at grade level. Uh, I believe it was mathematics, um, and so that to me was kind of a shameful statistic because his belief was that. Um, he wanted to do a school in his community to support his community. Um, and so the fact that, that these kids are not grade level um, feels to me 
a little like political grandstanding. Some of these celebrities that, you know, adopt from another country. Adoption is a great thing. I just celebrated yesterday uh, or day before yesterday, uh, the 16th anniversary of when I adopted two of my children. Um, so I'm not knocking adoption, but I'm just saying that seems to be the headline. And then it's like, you know, you see Charlize Theron uh, adopted two of her kids and now uh, all of her kids are, are uh, dressing as girls or, you know, you see these kinds of things. And so it just feels, and I'm not making accusations, I'm just saying it feels like there's some kind of political statement or some kind of grandstanding that's being done and no follow through. And so it bothered me to, to see this, particularly as a black man, because I thought, well, here's a black man trying to do something to benefit a black community. And yet there's no oversight. There's no accountability. Um, it doesn't look good for him. Um, and if I'm a philanthropist, I want a return on my investment to be able to hold up my model. I uh, don't politically agree with anything that Oprah's done, but she seems to be pretty involved with the two, the two schools that she founded. And they don't seem to be having this issue now. I haven't heard anything from those schools in a really long time, but I do remember years after, um, you know, it would say something about they did this or they did that. So what's your thought on that? Well, um, I am a LeBron James fan. Uh, he's he done, done a lot of amazing things on the court, and he does want very badly to be seen as a leader for our people in a way that, you know, Michael Jordan and other athletes were not. And the way the, a lot of the black athletes of the 60s, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jim Brown were, you know, he wants to be seen as somebody at the forefront of approving improving conditions for African-Americans. So I'm sure his school was started with the best intent. Um, I don't think it was a charter school. I think it was mostly a public school that he, he gave a lot of funding for. And in his defense, this school was not a typical private slash charter school where you see um, you see them attract a lot of the best students, you know, a lot of the best black students in the Chicago area, for example, or Detroit area. Some of these schools achieve because they are, they have parents who want their kids to uh, continue to grow academically. So they send these kids to these charter schools. So it's almost like a brain drain where these charter schools take the best students from the public schools. And LeBron school wasn't like that. It was a school that was failing before he got there. He gave him money. He gave him his name. He gave him inspiration and is still failing. It's a, it's a big problem. And I want to touch for a second, a, a larger issue about this, if I can. While you're pulling that up, I just want to say that that to me makes it even more, makes it worse, if you will because it, it seems like he's somebody that has the resources to pull that up. I mean, okay, great. It's not a regular charter school where you've got, you know, Brainiac, we've talked about that with affirmative action. You know, you can uh, take race as a factor, or you can just say, these are the best students and send them to this school. Um, but it just seems to me that 
you don't have to be super bright to be at grade level. That's the standard is to be at grade level. It's not to exceed it. It's not to, you know, whatever. It's to take these kids that would not, but for his philanthropy, have an opportunity to go to a good school. Um, so they're being shortchanged by not being at least at grade level in these subjects. Well, the point I was making is a lot of the students who are in the schools weren't at grade level before he got there, and they're still not at grade level. And, and that's indicative of a larger problem in how Blacks are doing in public schools. Now, I brought up this chart. I'll just touch on it briefly. It's about the Black-white academic gap. And as you can see here, in terms of reading, white students are doing 11% better than black students at the 12th grade level. And in terms of math, white students are 23% higher than uh, black students at the 12th grade level. So it's, it's a large problem in, um, in our community. And, and I remember years, I'm sorry, but I just remember because it reminded me of your chart. When we had Brian Ray, Dr. Brian Ray of Nary on, he addressed those statistics that you just showed. And he said that in a homeschooling environment or a an alternative education, um, that that gap was flattened. Am I correct? Yeah, and the primary reason for that, and it's in a homeschool environment, and you know this much better than I do, you have parents who want their students to academically achieve. You know, it's not a matter of um, just let them leave the house every day. And I know parents who don't know if their kids are going to school. They don't know what kind of grades this, their kids are getting. Um they don't know whether the kids are at the reading at the level they should be reading at, and and as I said, it's a matter of our, it's a matter of our culture, and I'll give you some more examples of what I mean. This is from Baltimore. This is uh, 23 Baltimore schools. Not one student was proficient in math, and these are all primarily black schools. Yes. Sad to say. I have been railing about that quite a bit because that's that's unacceptable to me. I've talked about that that statistic as well as the school in Texas where only five out of the 33 of their graduating class were eligible for graduation. Now, I think they did some kind of last ditch effort and got last I heard, all of the kids were eligible to graduate. But why wasn't that done sooner? Why wasn't there intervention sooner? That's what I'm talking about, DK. I'm saying that it seems like when the news gets laser focused on those 23 schools in Baltimore, when the news gets laser focused on these students, then all of a sudden everybody scrambles like SpongeBob, you know, with the computers all on fire. Oh, help. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then it gets solved right? How come they're not doing that to begin with? That's what I want to know. Because, you know, we talk about the personal benefit of slavery, that whole thing. I'm still on fire about that. I'm sorry, because it still con continues to be a trending issue on Twitter. But here's the thing. We were not able to be taught to read or write. It was illegal to teach a slave to read or write. And so, you know, this whole thing um, where, you know, our schools have, you know, 
1954, the separate and uh, make them se they're separate and equal. They they were not equal. The schools in our communities are not equal to those of white students or non-minority students. They're not equal by far. They're not equal in the um, equipment that they have. They're in terms of state-of-the-art stuff. They're not equal in terms of what they offer. Because I talk about how my kids participated in robotics, in music, in dance, in the arts, all of these things that you know our kids don't have access to, at least that I know of. Um, and so they have these STEAM schools um, because the, the A is for arts or STEM schools where there's science and engineering and math and all of that stuff. You know, our kids are not benefiting from that. It's still separate because of how our schools are funded because uh, they're in urban communities. So black kids go to black schools located in their neighborhoods or whatever, Hispanic, Latino kids they're still separate and they're still unequal. And I don't understand that in 2023. And I don't understand, as we alluded to with our interview with Colonel West, why this isn't a huge, huge issue in this particular election. Because as you and I discussed, we've got a number of minority candidates. Now I've heard Tim Scott talk about it. I'll give him that. But I haven't heard anybody else talking about it. Um, not to the extent that they ought to be. And I mean, with so many minority candidates running, you'd think that that would be the case. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also agree with the earlier point you made about, you know, a lot of the schools that are just outside the cities are doing so much better than the schools in the cities. And I know because I grew up in a school district. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. And I remember going to school then and having three or four students to a single uh, out-of-date textbook used to, you know, I'll sit around the one, one student's desk and try to follow along and walking along the hallways with the ceiling collapses and rats running through the playground and then through the halls. And, um, you know, until I moved out to the suburbs where I am now, I didn't know that you had you would have a locker for your, your books. I didn't even know you were allowed to have a book for every class. You had like a you go to math class, there's a book. You go to Spanish class, there's another book. And you go to English class, and they give you books like Watership Down and, um, like you said, 1984 and Great Expectations. And it's completely different. And, and some of these schools are only a few miles apart. But the larger point I was trying to make is that you can create a school, even a charter school, where you, you can provide students, inner city students with the best teachers and the best books and the best lockers and the best playgrounds where they can play football with the best uniforms and so on and so forth. But without the parental involvement, it's not gonna, you're still not gonna get the results that you should be getting. And one of the benefits of a lot of charter schools is that you, you do get a heavy amount of parental involvement because a lot of the parents who are able to send their kids to these charter schools are much like homeschoolers that they're very invested in their children's education. But apparently LeBron school was just one of those schools where you didn't, you did not get the same investment. It's just, you send these kids to school. Oh, it's LeBron. Oh, look, you got little books and maybe once a year he'll come by, sign some autographs, you know, you get, Maybe get maybe play some one on one or whatever on the basketball court. You, my goodness, you have a basketball court with brand new basketballs. But if there's not the parental investment, you're not going to get 
the results that you're going to continue to get the results like I just showed you, the same black-white education gap. And, and, and that's really the problem. It's not a matter of um, these schools not getting enough money. A lot of these schools are not being funded to the degree that they should be. Some are, however, and no one knows where the money is going for these schools. You know, you put so much money in some of these inner city schools and ends up who knows where because it's sure not showing up in the results of the students, that's for sure. Well, and that's the other issue. There's no accountability. I think that that's the issue is accountability because I would almost guarantee you, and I ranted about this not too long ago, I would almost guarantee you that these folks uh, who are administering this program are making high five-figure, low six-figure salaries. Um, and so their salaries should be on the line. Their jobs should be on the line. That money should be going back into programmatic issues and having the oversight and the accountability. There should be accountability for those funds. And if I were LeBron James, I would be saying, you know, where's we're not necessarily the return on my investment because that's the student, you know, um, but I guess what I'm saying is the return on the investment in terms of how this, there, there's two parts of it. There's the student return on investment in the fact that they are successful, but there's also running it as a business and making it accountable and having the oversight because that's what a traditional school does, even though I think those salaries uh, tend to be kind of bloated on the administrative side also. But there are expectations that, you know, you've got to, you know, hit this benchmark in order to unlock this funding. You have to hit that benchmark. Now, I disagree with some of that because I am a homeschooler and I tend to do things a little differently. And I'm going to say, guess what? I was successful because I didn't do it just once. I didn't do it just twice. I did it three times. So I do have a, a track record that I can go on. Um, and so I think that that's what I'm looking for here is to see that there is a track record and that there's some accountability for these funds um, that somebody steps in and says, wait a minute, we need to make a course adjustment here because something's not working. And so if you need to demand parental involvement as part of your uh admissions policy, then fine. That's what you need to do. Or you need to use some of those extra funds um, and ask LeBron, hey, we need, you know, this is this is happening this year. We've noticed this. Um, have some more funding for resource people to come in. If you don't have the parents come in and do the homework and all this other stuff, then you have a homework club where you've got people, like you were talking about the local libraries that you see, these tutors that come in and do all of these different things. So if the parents can't do it, because I know that they're working and they're hardworking, and in some cases they've got two and three jobs, then LeBron's vision, I thought, was to bring in these resources so that these kids got what they needed and they had a safe place to go after school until their parents could pick them up. Yeah, and I agree. I just want to, I don't want to assume that everybody in the audience knows who LeBron James is. I just want to point out a few things here. And this is a picture I found of him. LeBron James, so people who don't know, is a basketball player. He's the greatest basketball player alive right now. This is a picture of him. No, he's not. Blocking the shot of no, some guy not. from Steph Curry. Name? Steph uh, Curry is the greatest. Curry? Steph Curry Hurrah. is the greatest. 
Steph Curry is the greatest. Well, this picture he sees you blocking. Is that Steph Curry who's shot? He's blocking. You know what? I think that this is another episode of African American. We can make a rap now. Uh, And I don't mean rap, but I mean a rap. Because it looks Um, like it's blocking Steph Curry's shot. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but overall. The Warriors generally win. And I'm sorry, what happened to the Lakers this year? Oh, they lost. Oh, my. So, to my point, this has been another great episode of African American Conservatives. Please do follow us on Substack. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, we are doing a performance bonus program this uh, month with Facebook. So if you're seeing us through Facebook, please like all of our content, share all of our content, make sure that you're following us at facebook.com forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. This is Marie signing off from Studio C. And this is DK. I'm just pointing out that LeBron has his number one and no, most No, Boo. Well, we're gonna do, we're gonna do a whole show on LeBron. Steph Curry, <laughs> go to Facebook. Go to Facebook underneath this post and tell us LeBron or Steph. There you go. Okay. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash. A-A-C-O-N-S And also, you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support.